right, well, the world is covered with temples on every continent, yes, even on Antarctica. There it is. And in just about every nation on earth, you will find temples. Temple, by definition, one of the definitions, is a building devoted to the worship or regarded as the dwelling place of a god or gods. Most religions build and or use temples as places of worship. Now, there are some famous temples that you might have seen or heard of. Uh, One of them is the Lotus Temple in Delhi. It's a beautiful, uh, magnificent structure. There's the more uh, ancient structure, the Angkor Wat Temple in Cambodia. There is the Temple of Heaven in Beijing that has resided for quite a long time. And even here stateside, we have a famous temple, the Mormon Temple in Salt Lake City. Our family has had the privilege of traveling there years ago and visiting and going into the Temple Square. It's an amazing historical place. I I recommend it if you're looking for uh, places to travel. Salt Lake is wonderful. And of course, though, the most popular temple, at least here around Rooftop, would obviously be the Temple of Doom from Indiana Jones. (laughs) For as far back as civilization goes, people have visited and worshipped their deity or deities of choice in temples. Christianity also has temples, places where we can meet and encounter God, the one true God. And that is what we are talking about this morning in our current sermon series, What the Church Was Meant to Be. The past couple of months, we've been discussing many different things that the Big C Church, which is the total collection of true followers of Jesus, not just individual groups of people on buildings around the country, but the collective true group of true followers, uh, we've been discussing what God intended us to be. Last week, Jacob talked about how the church is like a flock of sheep. And today, we are going to talk about how we, the church, are God's temple. So let's jump right in with the question, how exactly is the church of today God's temple? Because we don't think of temple in terms of today's church. Now, when I talk about church, and the New Testament talks about church, it's not talking about a building. We've talked about this. You've had this mentioned in previous weeks in the series that when the New Testament mentions church, it's the Greek word ekklesia, and it means gathering or assembly. It's simply the gathering of people. Location, dwelling, edifice does not matter. The church is the gathering of God's people together, wherever that might take place. And to understand the role of a temple in Christianity, we have to go back and take a little journey through the Bible as God's definition and purpose of temple has changed and progressed over the centuries. And as we do this, we need to remember one thing for this journey, which we're going to go on here in a moment. And it's this. God has always wanted communion with his people. God has always wanted communion with his people. He's wanted to be face to face. God wants to be face to face with you. And when I say communion, I'm not talking about the event that we practice every third Sunday here at Rooftop where you take some bread, you dip it in the cup. Not that. That is communion, but that's a different communion. The communion I'm talking about is defined as the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. This is a type of communion God wants to have with us, his people. 
It's the communion that he's always desired to have. Now, we see this first in the beginning in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 during creation. God creates Adam and Eve. He creates this perfect place where they will dwell and where he dwells with them. In fact, Genesis chapter 2 verse 25 gives us a great verse about what life was like in the garden. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. None of us today would be naked in this room and not ashamed. They were fully naked and they did not, shame wasn't even a possibility. Not only did they not have shame with each other, but they didn't have shame before God. We are well aware of our shortcomings, our sins, our failures, the things done over and over repeatedly, way back, near, more recent. There is shame, there's guilt, there's condemnation, there's fear related to how we think God views us. All this is a byproduct that did not exist. None of this existed in the garden. Imagine that. People, both with each other and with God, living without shame. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 describes God walking regularly in the garden as a friend would. And that's how God interacted with Adam and Eve. That was his design in the beginning, and that's what he wanted. Casually strolling. It says, in the cool of the day. In the pleasant moment of the day. That's how God wanted to relate and connect to his people. However, there's a story, and Genesis tells us, at some point along the way, Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, they disobeyed God, and that act of sin corrupted who they were. And that ability to be with God, without shame, without fear, was gone. They had sinned against God, and they were well aware of their sin, and now they had to be separated from God of their own accord. They hid, and God in his holiness had to figure out a way to fix this sin problem. And because of all this, relationship and communion with God was lost. But the world didn't stop. And though not corrupted by sin, civilizations developed and grew. And the ancient peoples of the earth up until the people of today sought after all types of false gods looking for that connection which had then been lost. It happened then, it happens now. People looking for false connections that are trying to replace the one true connection that God offered in the garden that is now, because of sin, not available. Thankfully, God has always wanted communion with his people face to face. So God created a special people to call his own, the descendants of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12. He grew these people into a nation, the nation today we know as Israel. And he instituted his own temple system with the nation of Israel so that he could once again have communion, connection with his people. This is first accomplished through a two-step model. The first of those two steps was the mobile model called the tabernacle. The book of Exodus has chapter upon chapter in Leviticus about what worship is supposed to look like in the tabernacle. This was the means that God was going to use to overcome this barrier of sin and commune once again with his people. It was this portable church, and when they would set it up, God would dwell over the, the tabernacle, fire by day, or night, excuse me, and smoke by day. And his visible presence there in the tabernacle, as you can see, for the people around to know God is with us. God is present with us. Rooftop, coincidentally, started as a mobile model before getting a building, and then 
a second facility here. And Arise, and we plant them next year, they're going to start as a mobile model. Now, I can't promise that Pastor Jacob's going to have smoke and fire present on Sundays, but uh, it's going to be a great ministry launch and a ministry effort that we're excited to support uh, when the team kicks off next September. And so we are, we're very thrilled with that. Later, as Israel conquers the land in and around Jerusalem and establishes their own nation state, a permanent temple is built there in the capital city in Jerusalem. It was designed by King David, but not, he wasn't able to build it. His son Solomon actually built the temple. And it is, would be known as Solomon's Temple. Now, Solomon's Temple is hard to imagine if you've not thought of it before, and it would be a lengthy thing for me to describe it because there's some important pieces we need to know. So I have a short video just to help us visually understand what was the temple like. Let's go ahead and show that video. Solomon's temple stood in Jerusalem for almost 400 years. It was the crown jewel of Jerusalem and the center of worship to the Lord. Once you entered the main doors, you entered the holy place, a large room 40 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits tall. The room was overlaid with gold and decorated with cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, possibly alluding to the beauty of the Garden of Eden. The room was lit by ten large menorahs, five on each side of the room, that were constantly burning, and narrow windows on each side of the top of the room. On the right side of the room was located the table of showbread, which had twelve large flat pita-like loaves. Only the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies, and only on one day a year, the Day of Atonement. Before entering, the high priest passed through a beautifully embroidered veil woven from purple, red, blue, and white threads. The colors were the same as used in the ephod and breastplate of the clothing of the high priest, minus the gold thread. Embroidered on the veil were cherubim, who symbolically guarded the dwelling place of God. As the high priest passed through the veil, he had to pass these angels, who, like in the Garden of Eden, guarded the way back to the presence of the Lord. Upon entering the Holy of Holies, you would find that the room is in the shape of a perfect cube, being twenty cubits wide, long, and tall. The walls were likewise overlaid with gold and decorated with cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Two large cherubim flanked the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the center of the room, with their wings stretching from one side of the room to the other. This room is where the presence of the Lord would dwell, and represented the final goal and destiny of all Israel. You can see there's quite a bit of detail, and it's quite ornate what the temple was and how God designed it. And he was trying to communicate something to his people who didn't know him anymore, who had gone centuries without knowing him, the, the, the gold, the, the, the value, the jewels, how pristine, how specific things were. He was trying to teach them something about himself and what it was like to worship a holy God. And while it's all very important to the Old Testament Hebrew worship, I want to focus on one of the more important aspects of the tabernacle and temple, and that's this. There were sections that they were divided into. The tabernacle and the temple of the same form were divided into three main sections. As you can see up on the screen, there's a courtyard outside. 
And this is where people would bring their sacrifices, and this is where the activity would happen. People would come in, and they would come and confess their sins and bring their animal, and it would be slaughtered, and the blood would be spilled, and that blood would provide forgiveness for the set of sins that they had committed until the next time when they had sinned, they had to come back with another animal, and this process went through. This is where the priests were moving about doing their thing. And then inside the temple, you come into the holy place. And this is the first section of the building, and this is where the priests conduct the acts of worship inside the temple. Very quiet, very reverent, but active with the regular representation because these priests are representing the whole nation and they were representatives to God on behalf of the nation. And then in the most holy place, as you saw in the video, also known as the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God actually dwelt on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the Shekinah Glory, You can see the Ark of the Covenant here. It would sit there, and there was some type of glowing or some type of embodiment of God, similar to where the fire and smoke had been at the tabernacle, and God's physical presence dwelt there in the most holy place on top of the Ark of the Covenant. However, unlike the Garden of Eden where man could walk with God in the cool of the day, Only one person, the high priest, could only enter the Holy of Holies and then only one day of year, as he said. Now, this way of communing with God is a long way from where we were back in the garden. And yet, this is what God required. Nonetheless, the Temple of Solomon was one of the most glorious structures in the ancient world. At its height, under Solomon's reign, the temple brought Israel worldwide fame and renown. Rulers of nations traveled great distances to visit Solomon and to see the temple as it had been built. Some would call it the eighth wonder of the ancient world. It didn't take long, though, and the nation of Israel had big trouble and began turning away from God. Over time, people neglected the temple and the God who dwelt there. After several hundred years of neglect, the presence of God leaves Solomon's temple. The prophet Ezekiel talks about this weird cryptic moment when the presence of God departs the temple, moves through the streets of the city of Jerusalem and out the east gate, essentially signifying that you people have abandoned me. I no longer am here to bless and protect you. A short time later, in 587 B.C., the city of Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed brick by brick, and the people of Israel, most of them taken captive. But what did we say in the beginning? God has always wanted to commune with his people face to face. So 70 years later, God brings his people. Persia overtakes Babylon. The king of Persia gets a vision or a dream from God. He sends the captives back to Israel to set up the nation-state of Israel again. And in 515 B.C., the temple is rebuilt, now referred to as the second temple, or what would later be known as Herod's temple. It is no longer housing the Ark of the Covenant, which was lost in 587, at least as far as we know, unless it's still in some warehouse in Washington, D.C., But I have no proof of that. Well, little proof. And then the physical presence of God never returned to the temple like it had existed before. However, the rebuilt temple, the renewal of the temple sacrifice, allowed the people of Israel and the nation of Israel to be reborn and reestablished there. Not to its previous glory, however, because over the next 500 years, Israel would be conquered and conquered again and conquered again, and the temple would be defiled, and they'd have to cleanse it, and there were some back and forth. But nonetheless, all the way up until Rome conquered Israel and Jerusalem, 
in the time when, of course, we know that Jesus came. Jesus came and was born into the nation of Israel as a Jew during the Roman occupation. Now, we need to know that. It's very important to know that Jesus came into the world to fulfill and complete the ministry of the temple. He came to complete the ministry of the temple. But Israel did not believe this. They wanted to keep the, their temple and the old ways rather than receive the promised Lord who was going to come and make new worship and God's communion with his people. We read in the New Testament how the nation of Israel rejected Jesus and God judged them and he declared judgment on the temple as a result. Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 23, nearing his death, giving some words prophetic words, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And that house he's referring to is the temple. Another point later in his ministry, getting near his death in the book of Mark, and as he came out of the temple, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. He's speaking of the temple mount and the buildings there specifically to include the temple. And verse 2, Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that happened in A.D. 70 as Israel continued to rebel against Rome. Rome got tired and they wiped out the city, sent the people to the ends of the earth and burned and tore the temple apart piece by piece. There's just one little section remaining today known as the Wailing Wall where the temple used to exist. A mosque was built after the Crusades, the second most holiest place of worship for Islam. And that is how it resides today. There's a problem with a temple that we can see here now all these years later. People will put more value in the building, in the edifice, than in the God who is supposed to dwell there. People will put more value in the building and the edifice than the God who is supposed to dwell there. People get caught up in their religion or their specific denomination rather than focusing on Jesus, who's supposed to be the Lord of that religion and denomination. The religious rituals and practices become the objective rather than charity and love and mercy. Their building, be it old, like the historical buildings that become these landmarks of these churches, or these new buildings that are millions and millions of dollars are spent on that become these, these, these new edifices that, that have this glory and honor unto themselves, or like ours, a renovated building. We have to be careful that we don't get caught up in the temple and the way things happen within the temple itself. Rooftop purchased this building in spring of 2016. We spent about six months or so renovating, uh, working on this place, getting it ready. We opened up the first Sunday in November of 2016, and we had our grand opening the third Sunday in November of 2016. 
And it was a grand opening Sunday. We packed the place out. Uh, it was a bunch of people. It was a great Sunday. The Lord really blessed the transition from there, our old place, to here. And the second service was over, and it was just some, most of the people had left. But I saw a group of older folks who I did not recognize, kind of walking around, pointing at things. And I got in my mind, I bet they're with the previous church. And they must have come to the grand opening to see how things are going and just to kind of see what it looked like. And so I, being wanting to be a gracious host and also the Connections pastor at that time, went up and said, hey, are you guys part of church at Aft- or Afton Prez, excuse me? And oh, we're so glad that you're here. And before I could get, we're glad that you're here out of my mouth. There were two women and a man in the group. One of the ladies, fairly tall, turned to me with fire in her eyes and began to yell at me. Where did you put the pews? We were told that you weren't going to make any changes to the pews. And, the, and she started berating me for the renovations and the changes that somehow they had thought if they sell the building, it would be kept as it was. Obviously not going to happen. She went off, and she's just screaming at me right there in the back of the sanctuary. Now, Master Sergeant Stoker has also screamed at me quite a bit in my time, and he was a lot more vulgar and profane than this lady was. So I was fine with it. I was quiet and listened and was ready to engage her, but as soon as she was done, she turned and marched right out the door. (laughs) huffed off. And then the guy there, who I presume was her husband, put his head down like this and just followed after her. (laughs) And the lady who was there looked at them as they were storming out, looked back at me and said, I like what you've done to the place. And then she hurried out too after her. (laughs) True story. Happened right back there. Why do I share this? Because if what was in the heart of that woman was part of the spirit of the church before us, I'm not surprised that they struggled to maintain as a church. That's what we have to remember as a church, as a church community. What are we holding on to when we hold on to things? Well, in response to their rejection of Jesus, God does something dramatic and symbolic. Something that tore the cold and religious hearts out of the priests and Pharisees and the religious people in Israel in that day. And he did it at the moment of Jesus' death on the cross. In Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51, Matthew writes this, And Jesus cried out again from the cross with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He was finally dead after the torture he had endured. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. That curtain, by the way, 60 feet tall, nobody tore it. It tore miraculously. It says from top to bottom to signify it was God doing it, not man. And that curtain was between two to four inches in thickness, not something easily torn, if ever torn, without cut with shears of some sort. While the Holy Spirit had left the temple centuries earlier in the book of Ezekiel, God wanted to clearly show Israel and those who remained in the tearing of the veil that the Holy of Holies and His glory, His holy presence, was no longer exclusive property to the Jewish people. The God who had been contained in the Holy of Holies was now free and liberated to minister and to go where He pleased. He had already done that, but He let them know with that message clearly. Judgment has come. 
And this is where we are today. God wanted intimacy and communion with you and me as seen in the creation and in the Garden of Eden. We collectively broke that relationship and God has been working to reestablish it, reestablish it ever since. He used a tabernacle, then a temple, then a second temple, and finally he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's life and death and his sacrifice on our behalf removed the barrier. It tore the veil between God and his people. And when you and I repent of our sins and we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and we are given new life. And we celebrate that and we preach that regularly here at Rooftop because that's what the gospel is. But also, something else happens that we might not say as much. Ephesians 1 describes it as being twice, it says, being sealed with the Holy Spirit to mark with God those who belong to him. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 even more explicitly when he says this to the, to the believers. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are are that temple. Think about that. God's presence used to reside in buildings like the temple, but now through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, on our behalf, he has made us the temple. We are God's temple. And God's spirit, which used to dwell in the most holy place, now dwells just as powerfully in the bodies and the lives of every true believer here. Did you know that that's what you signed up for when you believed in Christ? That's part of the deal. And I don't think we see ourselves in that way. You and I, we are living temples. We are not the aging, decrepit, sin-stained, condemned, anxious, all these things. I mean, that might be part of what we struggle with, but that's not how we're defined. We are holy temples with the very Spirit of God that powerfully resided via fire and smoke and on the Shekinah glory now within each of our hearts. You are a temple. I am a temple. The beauty, the reverence. But we don't see ourselves that way. We take a much more degraded view of ourselves. We listen to what parents in their anger might have said about us. Friends who've betrayed us, spouses or former spouses, in the heat of anger, might have marked us with words. Or maybe it's just our own condemning thoughts. But we do not see ourselves as God's temple. And it's a tragedy. Because God very clearly and forthrightly says here, do you not know that you are God's temple and his spirit dwells in you? Think about it this way. Jesus came to fulfill or complete the ministry and purpose of the temple, okay? No longer do we need a temple to meet with God face to face. We do this through Jesus. So Jesus becomes the temple, all right? But we, the church, are what? We're the body of Christ. So we have also, because we've been joined with Christ and we've been given a spirit, we are also the temple of God. He is the temple. We are joined with him in faith and we also become temples of God with him. Does that make sense? That's the spiritual reality here this morning. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6.16. He says, For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. 
just like in the Garden of Eden. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's God's desire. It's his intent. It's been his intent from the beginning. That's what he wants today. It's what he's going to give us in full, in glory. So what does it mean for us personally, daily? Well, just like the priests were so careful and reverent of the temple in the Old Testament, we are called to see our bodies now with the same reverence since we are the new temples of God. Yes, with reverence. And do we view our bodies reverently? God knows human nature. He knows the sin-stained world we live in. He knows the challenges we face. And yet, he has said, this is what you are. This is what I've called you to be. And it's not surprising that he tells us that our sexuality is of the utmost importance to him and the primary component in this holiness and purity and for us to honor this temple where his spirit dwells. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19, Paul states it like this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body or her own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There was a transaction. When we said yes to Jesus, I don't know if you know this, we surrendered, title and deed, our body to him. There was an exchange. And if we weren't willing to sign over title and deed, then we might not have entered into the saving relationship that we think we did. Paul's very clear about that. You're bought with a price. And in our world today, the pervasiveness of the images and sexuality and the confusion and all the stuff that just grows louder and louder with each passing year, we are called to be holy. We're called to be temples regardless of what the world around us is. And this is tough. We had this great summit uh, series gathering Friday night. And we had folks from First Light who teach and educate churches and help folks who need to uh, get free from addictive behaviors related to uh, sexuality. And, and they had their team here. And it was a wonderful night to be reminded the church is supposed to be taking back the vision for what God intended in this area. Not surrendering and just doing our best to hang on by our fingernails trying to get to the end of our lives. It's a wonderful night of ministry. They talked about the hookup culture where we live in today, and especially our young, young adults, where there is no regard or commitment to a relationship. There's simply a sexual encounter, and that's it. The sexual morality that they're speaking of, it's not just adultery. It's sex outside of marriage. Uh, pornography. I mean, I can't even list all the, the deviancy that continues to come out more and more in this area. We're holy. We're temples. And God is inviting us out of that to be what he has, by the grace and power of Jesus, called us to be. They also told us something interesting. The average exposure for our children today in the sexualized culture to pornography is nine years old. I don't know if you're aware of that. Nine years old is the average exposure, which I think is providential that we had that, that night, that the message is being preached today, and Saturday, Rooftop is hosting 
As I said, equipping parents for the digital age. And if you have children, if you're an aunt or an uncle, if you're a grandparent, the team here has worked hard to put together a workshop for you. Childcare is provided. You can sign up online or on your blue card and we'll, we'll get it to them. But please take advantage of that. We don't want to be behind the curve. We, the church, want to be in front, setting the curve. As I close, we need to be reminded, as I said in the beginning, that God has always wanted to be in communion with us, his people. That's why he made us his temple. He wants to dwell in us. And by the power of his grace and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the question we have to ask ourselves this morning, are we a suitable temple for him to dwell? Let's pray. Father God, we, we walk this line between your grace and our inability to save ourselves. It is only in and through Jesus Christ, and yet fully understanding that, believing that at the core of our being, that we are forgiven, that we are made new, that should encourage a response. And I pray, I pray for Rooftop, I pray for folks here who feel stained and sullied and broken and tarnished by the world. We don't have to stay in this situation. We don't have to just try to hang on by our fingernails until the end of this life. You're calling your people to be radiant temples on a hilltop for the countryside to see, revealing your glory and people traveling from far and wide to see us inhabiting the living God in our hearts being able to find and experience you through the lives that we live, through the bodies, the temples that we inhabit. God, we pray that you would make this a reality. Give folks who are stuck courage to speak up, to step out. Help us be a church where we can have this conversation of grace, calling each other to, to reverent living, to be holy as you are holy, to be radiating temples. Thank you so much for making us your temple. We're so grateful for the opportunity and the role in your kingdom. In Jesus' name.